morning. Uh, Take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 20, if you would. The daily Bible reading, if you're following along with us, is actually Matthew chapter 23 today. And I thought about looking at that chapter this morning. It's um, Jesus is in Jerusalem getting ready to go to the cross in Matthew 23. And he uh, has a confrontation with the Pharisees like he is wont to do. They're always coming after him. But Matthew chapter 23 is Jesus unleashed, you might say, um, outraged and um, angry and not choosing to hide that any longer over the legalism of the Pharisees. And he lays woe after woe after woe on them about how dangerous their religion in the name of God really is. And Matthew chapter 23 ends with Jesus then crying, having this really tender moment where he's crying over Jerusalem and, and just distraught at how his people don't even understand their need for him. They think they understand the kingdom of God based on what the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of their day were teaching. And Jesus weeps over the fact that they don't understand what they really need. So we were going to do that. But then I thought, if you're going to read that today, or maybe you already read that, or you're going to be catching up to Matthew 23, I think it packs more of a punch if we look at Matthew 20 a little bit in depth, and a couple of small passages before chapter 20 that really set the stage for why Jesus, number one, would be so angry over the legalism of the Pharisees, over the rules of the Pharisees, the ones that they made in the name of God, over the kingdom of God that the Pharisees built. Because in Matthew chapter 20, and a little bit in 18, and a little bit in 19, and of course a little bit throughout his whole ministry, Jesus is trying to teach people and open their eyes to the true nature of the kingdom of God and what it really means to follow Christ, what it really means to follow the Lord, what it really means to operate within his kingdom. God hasn't been silent about it throughout the Old Testament, throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout all of the, his interactions with the Israelites. He is trying to, been, he's trying to show them how to operate within the kingdom of God. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Things have been so regulated. So many rules have been in place. So much bad thinking has been allowed to flourish that Christ has a lot of work to do to get people to understand the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. When Jesus comes on the scene and the things he has to uh, encounter in his ministry is a kingdom of God that is based on human thinking. And so Jesus is trying to set the record straight for people. And in Matthew 23, I think it culminates in this this big emotional chapter where Jesus is angry, turning over tables, and then where Jesus is weeping because he is sad that his people might miss the boat on what he's saying. So, Matthew chapter 20, we read that parable. Before we look at that parable, though, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to see that right before Jesus heads to Jerusalem, so before chapter 23, 
right before he goes there, he has this, um, not a final teaching, but a very important teaching on what it means to live in the upside-down kingdom of God. In chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says this, at the time, the disciples came to Jesus. So these are his closest friends, the men who've been walking with him for three years in his ministry. And they say, Lord, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In their society and in our society and in all human culture, I would bet the issue of who's greatest often comes up. And we want to know how we can be the greatest. And so they ask this very natural question. Because according to the Pharisees and according to the legalistic kingdom of the day, there was a hierarchy within the kingdom of God. And depending on how holy you were, determined where you sat in proximity to the throne of God. So they ask, who's the greatest? And Jesus said, he called a little child to him and he set him in the midst of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how can he say that? What does he mean? He goes on and he clarifies. Therefore, here's what he means. Here's what I mean about being a child. Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you think of a little child, you understand or you can see that they are dependent on someone else for their life. They need help to survive. And so children operate from a position of humility by necessity. And Jesus is saying that in order to be great in his kingdom, you must operate with humility necessarily all the time. That must be your mindset. So he's, he talks about this upside-down kingdom there, and then go to chapter 19, and he picks this up again. And I hope you notice a pattern here, that Jesus will say something, and even his closest friends fail to understand what he's saying, or maybe choose to ignore it, or simply just don't get what Jesus is saying. If you go to chapter 19, and look at verse... Uh, verse 16, it says this, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good shall I do that I may have eternal life? And then go down to verse 18, and Jesus said, uh, or he says in verse 17, Jesus says in verse 17, If you want to enter into life, into eternal life, into the kingdom, then keep the commandments. And then in verse 18, this rich young man says, Which ones do I need to keep? And Jesus says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he lays out all these commandments that the man needs to follow to gain eternal life. And the young man said, I've done all these. I've kept them all. What do I still lack? Why don't I have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sow what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But the young man heard that saying, heard that saying and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So there's this interesting confrontation between a rich young man and, and Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, I've done everything I need to do according to the law. Do I have eternal life? Is there anything else I need to do? And Jesus says, there's one more thing you need to do. And it's you need to get rid of that thing that you love most. You need to get rid of your idol. And the idol for this man was his possessions, his riches. 
And Jesus says, get rid of all that and come follow me. You need me in your life. And this man walks away sorrowful. Now, here's what this has to do with the kingdom. Watch what his disciples do. Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? After Jesus in chapter 18 had let the disciples know what it took to be the greatest in his kingdom, what it took to be part of the upside-down kingdom, you see, they still have hang-ups. They still have a mindset of their legalistic kingdom because they're astonished that a rich man wouldn't be ushered into the kingdom of God because riches imply status, and to the Jews, riches also implied favor of God. If you had a lot, God must really love you. And so when Jesus says, that's not what God's looking for, that's not what God cares about, to be in his kingdom, that's not what it's about. They are astonished, and they even ask, well, then who can be saved? Because they're thinking, well, if he can't be, I certainly can't be. Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So then, this is interesting, Peter pipes up and he says this in verse 27, and we're getting to 20, I promise, I just want to set the stage. Peter answered and said to him, see, look, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what do we get? Now, I don't know how Peter could have just heard what Jesus said and then jumped to this conclusion with this question. But he does it, because that's what Peter does. He does Peter things. And he says, look, well, well if, if it doesn't matter what you have or you have to give it all up, look, we left everything. We sacrificed everything for you, which is true and a good point. And then he asks, what shall we have? What do we get in the kingdom? And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus' response is interesting because he doesn't take Peter to task right away or emphatically over asking a very selfish and misunderstanding question. Instead, Jesus points out that, yes, you have sacrificed, and I will give you much more than you could ever imagine. And he says this, and not just you, but everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or lands, for my name's sake, if they leave them, they shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And then he says this, and this is really important, but many who are first will be last and the last first. After he says that, he dives right into this parable, which Jesus often does, right? After a big teaching, then he wants to illustrate what he means. And so, as we've already read, I'm not going to read through the whole parable again, but we have this um, vineyard owner who uh, needs workers. And um, he goes to get workers, and then he talks about what he pays them, and then there's this interesting exchange about whether or not things are fair. And what does that have to do with what Jesus is saying? Well, when he talks in parables, of course he's trying to connect to his audience, and so there are things about this parable that make sense to it, the Jewish audience. If you were an Israelite, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew, you would have understood a lot of what Jesus was saying in here. And then there are some things in this parable that are shocking 
that are meant to get people to wake up to the fact that God's kingdom is different than man's view of God's kingdom. That God's kingdom, that Jesus' kingdom that he's establishing is an upside-down type of kingdom where everything you would expect to be true is turned on its head and following what God says is required. So here are the things that made sense to these people that wasn't shocking about this parable. Um, A vineyard. Oftentimes, um, throughout the Old Testament, um, a vineyard and the people of Israel were equated. So, if you're a Jew and you hear a vineyard, you understand, oh, it's talking about Israel. Okay, and so, if it's talking about Israel being the vineyard, there's only one owner, there's only one landowner of Israel's vineyard, and that's God. So, they're probably right on board with Jesus right off the bat when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner or a vineyard owner who went outside to hire laborers. So, okay, Jesus is talking about God and, and his people, Israel. Um, Another thing that is uh, similar that these people would understand is how the hiring process was done. This was common for someone to go into the marketplace or into the city and find the people who needed work. They're standing around at the marketplace waiting to be hired. And so that happens. You find that happening in this story. That's why um, they go, they find the workers, and they bring them back. And then they talk about payment, and that's something that these people would understand too. If you got hired that day to go work in someone's vineyard, then you would agree on a price. And um, the price in the parable is a denarius. And that was a generous, was a generous gift and, and well worth a day's work would be a denarius. Uh, and then also at the end of the parable, they talk about payment. And that was also something that these people would have understood too because after you work, then you get paid on your way home so that you can buy the meal that you need or, or get whatever you need before the next So those are all the things that made sense in this parable. Those are all the things that they would track with. And here are the things about this parable that are shocking and don't make sense. The fact that the owner himself goes repeatedly to the market to find workers. In that day, if you owned land, if you had a vineyard, if you could pay people to come and work for you, you would send your servants to hire people. There's no way that the landowner would go himself. So this is shocking that the landowner would go himself to look for help. Another shocking thing about this parable, obviously, we pick up on this right away, is how all of the workers received the exact same pay equally. There was no distinction. Whether or not you started in the morning or whether or not you came a couple hours before the end, you were paid the same. What's also shocking is the fact that one of those workers, or a couple of them, probably the ones in the morning, decided to argue with the landowner about what was going on. That was something you wouldn't do either. I mean, you might be upset that everybody got the same wage, but to go and to confront the landowner about it um, would take an incredible amount of courage. And so the workers complain that how can they, who worked all day, get the same pay, get the same wage as those who work just a couple of hours. And it's interesting how the landowner replies. And he says, didn't we agree on what you were to be paid? Well, yeah. So we had a contract. Yes. Did I pay you your contract? Yes. Then how have I done anything wrong? All I have shown you is justice. You got what you 
agreed what you deserved. And then he says, so if you got what you needed, if you got what we decided on, how can you then be upset with me when I decide to give what I will to anyone else? Whose money is it? Whose fields are being worked? Who gets to set the price? So this owner is saying, listen, I've been nothing but just to you and gracious and merciful to them, and I have done no wrong in any instance. And the implication, of course, is that the laborers from the morning who complained have to just shut up because they have nothing to say, because the landowner has done nothing wrong, and he's only been fair and generous. Something else you learn about this landowner is that he is someone who actually cares about his workers or workers in general, not only by what he pays, not only by the fact that he goes to look for them and handpicks them himself, but also the fact that he goes multiple times to the market. And he says, when he, when he goes back in the middle of the day and he says, why haven't you, why aren't you, why are you still here? There are people who haven't gotten any jobs that day. And they say, well, no one's going to hire us. And he says, I'll hire you. And he goes back at the end of the day and there's still people who weren't picked to work. And he says, why are you still here? And they say, well, no one would hire us. And he says, I'll hire you. Come work for me. Again, these things are shocking to people, to the Jews who are hearing this, to the disciples. That's not how, that's not how, the, that's not how the kingdom of man works. That's not how the kingdom of man works at all. So what's the point of the parable? Why does Jesus give this teaching here after what the disciples said in 18 and 19? Well, the point is that all are equal under God's grace. That nothing I bring to the table can earn me anything in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter when you come in. It doesn't matter the good you've done. And thankfully, it doesn't matter the bad you've done. That before the cross, all are equal. And under God's grace, all are equally cleansed and brought in to be members and citizens of the kingdom of God. It's an upside-down kingdom. The disciples couldn't understand that it wasn't based on anything that they did or that somebody would do. And it's because the kingdom of man had taught them for so long that God only cares about what you bring to his table. But this parable showed that God doesn't care at all what you bring to his table because he's bringing you to the table because he wants to bring you to the table. And he'll give you what you need. He'll supply your need and deal generously with you and justly. And so everyone, I think... I can say this, everyone who claims to follow God must constantly be evaluating how they understand the grace of God in their own lives and how they give that grace to others. That was deeply lacking in the disciples' lives and in their hearts. And the kingdom of man that ruled in Israel that day did not understand God's grace, how to receive it, and how to give it. So then there's a couple of interesting things that happen in verse 20 after that that I think point to why this is so important and why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 is so angry with the Pharisees and is so sorrowful for the state of his people. 
So Jesus gets done teaching this parable. Then we're going to skip 17 through 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. So again, remember, they're heading, they're heading to Jerusalem now. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. He's getting ready for the final week of his life, and so they're traveling to Jerusalem. And after teaching this, after teaching what's required for the upside-down kingdom of God, God's grace is required, humility is required, love of Christ and following him above all is required. After he teaches that, <laughs> then in verse 20, you get this story. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. So that's James and John's mom. And she came, James and John, the disciples. She came and she kneeled down and she asked something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him this, grant that these two sons of mine, that James and John, may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. You see, people are concerned with the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It's on their minds. But they're still thinking of his kingdom in human terms. And Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He's talking about what's about to happen to him. He's talking about the things he's experienced through his life, the suffering he has experienced by following God in the upside-down kingdom. And he's talking about the intense event that he's about to go through. And though so they say to him, oh yeah, we're able. Yeah, we can do that. Sure. Of course we can. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give. It is for those whom is prepared by my father. He says, you will suffer for my name. You will experience hardship because you follow me. But listen, it's not up to me who sits where, and it's not about who sits where. And you're missing the point again. And I, this is great. In verse 24, when the ten heard it, that's everybody else, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. What an understatement. I'm sure they were livid. And not because James and John seem to be slow on the uptake and they can't figure out what Jesus is actually saying. But it's because if those two seats are taken, the right and the left of Christ, well, then there's no more seats of honor for them. And how dare these guys, our friends, using their mom, try to win Jesus over to their side and leave us out. And they, and they act that way because they're still operating under the legalistic kingdom of man, and they don't understand the upside-down kingdom of God. They don't understand it. Jesus has taught them several times in what the passages we've looked why, what they need to do to operate within the kingdom, and they still don't understand. So in verse 25, Jesus says this. He calls them to himself. And he says again, okay, let's, let's go over this again. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so that's how everyone operates. That's just natural humans operating 
in society. The Gentiles, they lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. You know that in the kingdom of man, in human thinking, in broken, cursed, sinful thinking, you know that having authority over someone or reigning over someone or having power and greatness and making sure others know it, you know that's how they operate. You know that's what's important. That's how you get ahead in the kingdom of man. But in the kingdom of God, he says this, yet it shall not be so among you. And he doesn't just say, don't do it. He says, it's not going to be that way. It's not really up for debate. If you truly are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you will understand the wisdom and the truth in the fact that we are not to act like the world, the kingdom of man. It shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And we've come full circle now back to the humility. The heart of humility, the mind of humility that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2 where he says, Jesus didn't count it any sort of loss to pour himself out. He wasn't up in heaven with the Lord and he said, oh, well, I don't want to do this or, or this is some sort of a terrible thing for me to have to go down and to bring the kingdom of God to people and to bring redemption to people. He didn't sit up there and said that. He humbled himself out of love. And that's the type of kingdom that Jesus wants his people to operate in. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he says, listen, don't just do it because I just say do it. Do it because I'm actually walking that same road myself. I wonder if Matthew looked back when he was writing this and said, wow, I didn't even understand how we're on the road to the cross in this moment. And Jesus is talking about how he has come to serve. I didn't understand what he meant, but I do now. Give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there's this little, last little story that kind of seems maybe out of place. Kind of seems a little weird. But I think it's the whole crux of chapter 20. And the little part in 18 and the little part in 19. Here is a story where in real life, the kingdom of God plays out. And we see how people who follow Christ act and I think we need to take a lesson from what they do. In verse 29, it says this. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to the cross. So they're leaving Jericho and they're walking along the road. And a multitude's with him. Wherever Jesus went, oftentimes there was just a huge amount of people following him. From his closest disciples to those who actually to the, the, the outer circle of disciples, all the way to people who were just following because they might see something amazing, they might gain something, they just want to see what's going on. There are people from all types, you know, you know all types of, uh, of relationship to Jesus following him. Whether they know him or not, they're just following him. 
And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Capital S in my Bible, Son of David. This is a title. And this is an interesting title because it is one that denotes royalty. These two blind men, they don't see. They have not been following Jesus. Maybe they heard of Jesus. These two blind men know more about Christ and their need for him than his own disciples and the multitude following him that day. Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them and they shouted, be quiet, shut up. That This happens all the time if you read through the Gospels. When someone in need who recognizes that Jesus can supply their need, you have somebody, often the disciples, doesn't say that here, so I don't know. Hopefully they'd learned. But oftentimes the people closest to Jesus would say, shut up, he has no time for you. So they cried out more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord. Son of David. So Jesus stood still. He stops. He hears them in their cry for help, for mercy, and their royal title for him. Now, I don't think they understood exactly what kind of Messiah he was. Most people didn't. But they knew he was some sort of a Messiah. You don't just throw around the Son of David to everybody. He said, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. I wonder, it says, so Jesus had compassion. I wonder if, because he often does, right, when he's met with genuine faith, people who are in need of him. I wonder if he's also thinking about how his closest friends continually bring up how to be great, how to get the most out of him. I wonder if he thought back to that and thought, wow, these guys, they know they need me. He's filled with compassion. I wonder if Matthew, when he was writing that, was thinking that too. Jesus had compassion and he touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight. And what they do? They followed him. Chapter 20, chapter 23, parts of chapter 18, parts of chapter 19 are all about Christ bringing in God's kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, one that's based in humility and service and love for Jesus. And I think this story here at the end is purposefully put in there by Matthew to show this interesting contrast between those who say they love Jesus and are missing the boat and those who realize their need for Jesus to fill them. It's almost a picture of that parable. Matthew, or, uh, yeah, well, yeah, Matthew, Peter and James and John are hired in the beginning and 
and their walk with Jesus, and their suffering with Jesus, and their suffering things these blind men don't understand. And Jesus has showered them with grace upon grace upon grace. And they keep coming back saying, what's in it for me? What more do I get? They keep looking at Christ's kingdom through the kingdom of man, that lens, and they keep forgetting that it's not about them. It's about Jesus. And then here you have two blind men similar to those who came at the end in the parable, right? And the same grace that Jesus shows to the disciples, he shows to these men. I hope they weren't part of that multitude saying, stop talking, he doesn't have time for you. I hope they weren't part of that. But if they were, I hope they see. They could see in that moment that the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God is about humble service, faith in Christ, the mind of Christ, looking like Jesus. Jesus showed us how to live in his kingdom and how to realize that here in our lives, in our societies, in our cultures, on this earth, this broken, sinful, terrible earth. Jesus brings his kingdom to it and he wants his people to be all about showing the kingdom of God to people who are in need. These blind men knew they were in need. And they knew that Jesus was the only one. It's interesting, I was reading and one person pointed out that this was their only chance. Their only chance at a different life. Because Jesus wasn't coming back that way ever again. He was on his one final trip to the cross. So these guys took advantage of Christ passing by them. And Jesus says, I want that hope. I want that gospel. I want that power to go out to all the world. And it only goes out through his people, through his church, through his body, through his disciples, through his followers. So I think we all need to evaluate God's mercy and grace in our lives, understand it, trust in it, hold to it, cling to it, and look to Jesus on how we can show that grace and mercy to those who are in need, no matter how small or indifferent they may seem. Because the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom that operates on a whole different level an opposite level than the kingdom of man. And it's so much better. Isn't it so much better? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and your word. I thank you for the example of Jesus. That we can see what we need to do. We don't have to just guess or hope we get it right. But Father, we can drink deeply from the well of Christ's example, and I pray that we would. That we as a church, as the church at large, would be able to go like Jesus did into a hurting world and show people a different way, a better way, a way that matters, a way that has meaning. We could show people the gospel, we could live the gospel. And we could do it together in a way that honors and glorifies Christ in all things. 
Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.